Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Derricka Purnell. Derricka is a lawyer, writer, activist, and organizer. She is also the author of the forthcoming Becoming Abolitionists, Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom, which will be out on October 5th. Pre-order that book right now. Trust me. Today, Derricka and I talk about the vastness of the human imagination, the questions surrounding police and prison abolition, and the books that have guided Derricka on her journey to becoming an abolitionist. The Stacks Book Club pick for September is Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, September 29th with Derricka Purnell. Okay, today is a big day in the land of the Stacks. We are officially an independent podcast again. For you listeners at home, this won't change how and where you get your podcasts, except that we are back on Stitcher now, so that's a yay. Um, For me, this means I'm now 100% fully responsible for this show, which is terrifying and thrilling, but ultimately, I know that I have to bet on myself. So here we are. I want to thank Tawny Newsom, Kevin Bartelt, and Andrew T, aka the team from Yo! Is This Racist podcast for helping me make this transition back to the life of an indie creator. I'm also thrilled to announce that I have brought on my first ever team member, a sound editor named Christian Duenas. He's great and he's perfect addition for the stacks and I'm really excited to be working with him. Okay, and in this season of change, I've also made some changes to the stacks pack on Patreon. We will finally be doing bonus episodes for patrons only. We're also going to be partnering with indie bookstores to get you more book recommendations. And we're not changing any of the perks that you already know and love. So you can still get discounts on the merch, shout outs on shows, and of course, the monthly virtual book club. Now, I went back and forth on pricing a whole bunch, and I couldn't decide if I should change and ask for more money for the added perks. But ultimately, I decided I like it how it is. So for $5 a month, you can get all of what we've been offering, plus all the new additions. We're calling that tier general admission. Now, if you think that's too cheap, I have a new tier called generous admission. It's the exact same as the general admission tier, but you can chip in a little bit more. It's $10 a month, and that's just a way to show your generosity if you're so inclined. Please know I am beyond appreciative to the Stacks Pack and to anyone who's able to chip in and join. If that's you, please head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. I also want to give a quick shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Amber Carson, Abby, Janelle Osowski, C, Tiffany Doherty, and Andrea Martin. Thank you all so much. If supporting the show through Patreon isn't an option for you, I totally get it. A few free and extremely helpful ways you can help the show is by subscribing, leaving a review, telling people you know to listen, and talking about the show on social media. It all goes a long way, and it's all completely free. Okay, enough, enough, enough. Let's get to this episode finally. You all are going to love Derica. She is incredible and inspiring and so thoughtful, so let's get to it. All right, everybody. I'm really excited. Today, I have Derricka Purnell, organizer, activist, or lawyer also, and now author. So I never do this, you guys. You know this, but her book is not out until October. But it was so important to me to have Derricka be the guest who talked about Blood in the Water with us this month. So I begged her publicist to let me have her early 
with the promise that you all would still buy the book, even though it's not out. So you have to pre-order it right now. It's called Becoming Abolitionists. Derica, welcome to the Stacks. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like after reading your book that I already told you, I freaking love. I think it's going to change the game about the way people oh think gosh. about abolition. And we're going to get into that. But I just, I have a million questions. I, I took so many notes. And then when I was trying to prepare for this interview, I was like, why did you take so many notes? And I was like, that's right. There was so much in the book that I wanted to remember. Um, but before we get to that, can you kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself? Like where you're from, kind of how you got into writing. And you don't have to do like a full thing, but just give us a sense of who you are. Yeah, of course. Well, again, thank you so much for for having me. I am out of my mind, nervous, excited. Can't believe this is happening. Like this is, like a, this is a real conversation about something I wrote so I'm just thank you again for the opportunity um to talk about so just work that I find incredibly important that so many people have been working on for decades and centuries before my existence so I'm happy to have this offering so my name is Derica I am from St. Louis Missouri south side near downtown um I got into writing I think most honestly because my mother and my grandmother were writers. And so it's so funny. My grandma has this beef with my Angelo and my Angelo has no idea who she is. But she's just like poetry. I can write poetry like that. And so my grandmother used to fill up these metal boxes with poetry. I'll always break into them and read them. So my grandmother was just an incredible writer. And my mom was a comedian and she would have similarly notebooks of jokes and prayers. And so I grew up around these two women who are always um, writing. And I used to play around and write stories when I was a kid. I used to do all these adventure stories. I used to remake Babysitter Club so everyone's Black. I used to do all kinds of stuff like that. And then when I got to high school, um, I started like reporting the news and I really enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed presenting it in front of class. And then throughout college, just by myself, always wanted to tell a story, some sort of a story. And yeah, it, it kind of just sort of goes from there. I was very fortunate to get published in random newsletters or emails. And because you're like the president of whatever student organization, you're responsible for drafting statements all the time, right? So for mm. news, for good news, for bad news, celebratory news, activist stuff. So I was usually the person communicating. And I just realized how much I loved it. And then 2000, I guess, 2011 or 12, I decided I would try to call myself a writer and experiment okay. more seriously with what I thought it meant to be a writer. Um, and it was really bad. Everything was <laughs> It was really bad. It mostly consisted of Facebook rants. But one thing that taught me was that I could, when I'm angry enough, can communicate um, very well sometimes. And it was in those sometimes that I noticed mm. made a difference. And so um, through that, just just being voluminous, practicing, getting honest feedback, seeking feedback, I continue to try um, to write, but that hasn't been my primary identity. And now it's weird because I'm in this space where I care less about being a lawyer and I care more about what it means to think and debate in public and, and push people and to be pushed around ideas. And now I'm just, I have 17 jobs because of it. And one of them, <laughs> one of them is writing and, and having a column now at The Guardian. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about how I was going to introduce you and I was like, there's too many titles for her. Like, is that possible? There's a thousand of them. But, you know, I want to spend a lot of time talking about abolition because obviously that's what your book is about. And I think, at least for me, I'll I'll tell you kind of a little bit about how I have come into thinking about abolition to set this up because I, I, I'm probably not alone, I would imagine. But I think that the police are fucked up. And I think that prisons are fucked up. And I also came from a place of like, but we need these things because mm -hmm. that's what we have. And that's what I understand. And in the last like five, eight years, I don't know, you know, I recognize how broken, I guess you could say the system is. And, and I have had a hard time figuring out how to respond to that criticism that I have and that other people have with something that is quote unquote productive, right? Mm -hmm. And like thinking that abolition is like not a real option. I think that's sort of how I was approaching my feelings. So like defund the police felt really appropriate because it's like you can defund and you can move things around and you can fix it. And it hasn't been until the last like maybe two years that I've even really started to think 
about abolition of the police. I think prison abolition to me was easier to understand mm-hmm. and easier to grasp onto. And and then, you know, jump to last month or like two weeks ago, reading your book and being like, holy shit, I know this is scary for me. And I know this is scary for people to think about abolition, but I'm also really hopeful because this book has made it seem like something that we can have, like something that that we that we can be having conversations about for real and not having conversations about that are like one day, but having conversations that are like, how can we move mm-hmm. towards this today? Like as soon as we get off the phone, how can I move towards this today, <laughs> right. right? And so and so for people who are at home who are like, this is crazy, you know, whatever pejorative Marxist, communist, socialist, whatever like label you want to say, or like whatever crazy left wing this and that. And even people who think they're progressive. Like I know I think of myself as progressive and I just admitted that I thought that abolition was a little cuckoo, right? But for people who are kind of coming to this conversation, my only ask of you listening at home is that you can just try to keep your mind open to the idea of possibility and like more and more possibility. Because for me, keeping that space has helped me and it was it allowed me to read your book in a way that it really affected me deeply. So I just sort of want to give that precursor to folks who are listening because Derek has has created this text that that allows for possibility and and not to spoil the ending, not that there's a spoiler, but towards the end of the book you say something along the lines of like we deserve to have other problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we deserve to be working through other problems and to me I think at that point I was like I realized that I was blocking this option and this possibility because of all the things I mentioned before. So with all that being said, thank you. And I'd love for you to kind of talk loosely about what police and prison abolition is all about in the in the broadest of terms, and then we'll kind of narrow it in. Okay. Wow. Just <laughs> what a preface. Thank you so, so much just for your kindness and your curiosity and your generosity just truly truly thank you because i i deeply resonate with you i thought that i for so long i had been used to being what i thought the most progressive person in the room and right. i just kept living and i kept meeting people who were committed to freedom that i had not been introduced to yet and it's only through those conversations those debates those late night going back and forth. This doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? This isn't realistic. I know people who get killed. I know people who've been harmed. I've been harmed. It's It's been through those debates and commitments to being in spaces with just people who had different ideas about freedoms of my own that I was pushed to think more critically about who the police were, what the police do, and ultimately forge an analysis through these conversations, through this debate and organizing that really made me understand that police abolition wasn't simply about policing, right? It was actually what Fred Moden and Stefano Harney says, which is what kind of a society that could have police and what will it take to undo that society? So for so much of my life, I assumed that police were as normal as male carriers and firefighters and nurses. And like, these are just the regular institutions that pop up on your filling the blank charts at school, like recognize right. the person in your community who like, <laughs> you can say hi to on Thursdays. And it's like, oh yeah, they're just in that list. I remember cops coming to my class in fifth grade and walking around with like books and guns. And it was like, oh yeah, like this is like cool. Like these are people who are in our, in our neighborhoods and in our community. And as I got older, either personally or through my family, had so many different experiences with um, with police and the institution of policing that just caused lots of harm, just lots of harm, and interpersonal harm, institutional harm. And I was just forced to question the purpose of this institution, right? And so for people who are curious about prison abolition versus police abolition, I would say, and this is drawn up you know, abolitionist thinkers who've been thinking about this and organized around this for much longer than I have. I think about it as a way to undermine the reasons why people need police, right? Mm -hmm. To undo the reasons why people think they need police and undo, undermine, eradicate the actual institution of policing, right? So it's all of those things. Like, why do we need policing society, right? Why do people think they need it? 
or why do we have them? And start eradicating those reasons and also building the kinds of relationships between each other, between our communities, between this place that we're temporarily calling the United States of America into this planet. Because mm-hmm. ultimately that was, it's going to take. And um, yeah, I guess I, I try to ask myself, and I'm thinking about the, the interview I just did where someone asked me, you know, look at these other countries in Europe, they have way less police fatalities than the United States as a, as a model, as an example. And I remember when I came to that conclusion of, wow, it's not as simple as reducing police fatalities, right? Because police are still going to be here to carry out evictions. And what kind of a society will evict people because they don't have money, because they don't have resources? What kind of society will allow people to sleep on the street during a a global pandemic where there's more than a million people dead internationally? Like what what kind of society permit these things and then use the police to clean it up? I don't want to live there. I don't want you to live there. I don't want to live there. I don't want the people listening to live there. And so it's not as simple as more diversity or more training. If they're just better trained, they can treat the people nicely who are being evicted, but the eviction right. doesn't stop. <laughs> the, right. it doesn't stop. No amount of politeness stops the power that causes so much harm and exploitation in our society. And so right. that's my hope for abolition, that people understand is this broader project to eradicate the harm in the institution that perpetuates the harm. Right. Because like one of the things you say in the book is even police officers who are the good apples, like the ones who are great and they're, they're, they come from diverse backgrounds and like they have great training and they know the people in their community. Even those people rough people up. Even those people are arresting people for standing on the street corner for no reason. Like even the best police officers are hurting communities in ways that we don't need. We don't need that. Like, and I, and I think another thing that you say that I found to be really like, a lot of my reading, I guess, of this was like my thinking was changing as I was mm. reading it. And one of the things that you said is like, and I've heard so much of like with defund the police, it's like we we want to reallocate these funds for training or for diversity or for, you know, X, Y, and Z or replacing, you know, people who are the police with other people. And you made this point. You're like, I don't want to replace the police with people who police. Like, it's not enough to be like, okay, we're going to get rid of police officers, but then we're going to hire this group of people who go in and evict people. Like, that's just another police officer. That's just an eviction person. (laughs) And I think that that also, I I guess, you know, we come to these, these ideas as individuals over time through different avenues. Like, it's such a personal thing how you develop your own set of moral your own moral compass your own political leanings like all of that stuff is so individual and it, of course. it could be a book you read a person you know a, a you know a person that you saw on tv like who knows but that that like we are not trying to replace the police with people who police yes was like of course because there are so many police officers in our lives hall monitors right like that's a kid police absolutely <laughs> yes. you know like there's all these like people who do policing and we are taught, like you said, from a young age to believe that the police are necessary, like that they come into our schools and like mm-hmm. tell us about things. And you you have the experience of the militarization part of it with like oh, the yeah. junior ROTC, which you talk about in your book. And like, do you think that we have fundamentally like in America, Americans as a whole, obviously not everyone, but do you think we have like imagination problems, like a lack of imagination or a lack of curiosity that we have been unable to imagine other solutions? Oh, not at all. I think that we have <laughs> incredible imagination. So I don't think imagination, oh, let me say this. I think the word imagination is rather neutral, right? Okay. I believe slavery was a fixture, someone's imagination. I think Great policing our imagine, or someone imagined the tools, we imagine tear gas, we imagine all of these ways to be violent in our society. So I I don't actually think it's a problem of imagination. I think we have, we are, the people who decide to have police and to use police, they make calculated decisions that's predicated on our humanity, on the ways in which we experience pain, Mm. violence. It's why they know to put people in in a cage. It's why they imagine to put people in 24-hour holding cells. It's why they know when to use nightsticks or when to use a gun. Or when. These are all like manifestations right. of someone's imagination. This, God, you're so right. It's like, <laughs> it's so, no, no, it's so messed up because even as a kid, you're like, 
imagination's great. And then you realize, like, at least for me, as I started to get older, especially after the first time I got tear gas, I said, who imagined this? Right. Who imagined to create some chemical to put it in a can, to shoot it out of a tank for it to explode? Someone imagined this. And engineers, scientists, there was so much intentionality that went into these tools of destruction, into these jobs, into these professions. So surely the imagination is there. I, I have... No question that imagination is there. We're wasting our imagination to uphold white supremacy, capitalism, colonialism, homophobia, racism, right? So it's how do we eradicate the imagination that leads us to violence and make sure we're investing and promoting and amplifying and celebrating and experimenting with all the levels of imagination that helps people feel more free and more liberal and more liberated. That's what I'm interested in. That's why I think the project of abolition can offer us is eradicating that level of imagination and making sure other forms of imagination are able to manifest in a way that eradicates harm in this society. Yeah. Damn, you're so right. I feel better. (laughs) I feel more hope. Everything about you makes me feel more hopeful in the weirdest of ways, I feel like. I don't know. I just, I I have like very warm feelings for your brain um, and for you. I think another thing that really struck me about the book is like that policing is not broken. We don't actually have a problem with policing. Police and policing and the criminal system and all of that are working as designed. Like you're saying, like this imagination to create all of this, like this is what they had imagined, right? And like that it is, it's not just about police and civilians, but it's about land and labor and capitalism and white supremacy and all of these things. And like, and you talk about how, you know, so so policing is in is in partnership with these paradigms. And then you talk about abolition being in partnership with other paradigms. Mm-hmm. What are those? Oh, so many. It sort of depends on. <laughs> Give us a handful. Yes. Yes. Well. <laughs> also, everyone, again, read the book. It's all in the book. I'm trying not to spoil the whole book because I want you all to go out and get it. But I also get to talk to Derica Purnell. So I want her to also tell us everything she does. <laughs> yes. Well, there's there's so many. So in the book, I only talk about it. A, a few because space, right? Like you can right. only you have to stop writing at some point. Even now, I'm looking and find myself being like, mm, okay, I agree with myself here. I have I'm applying <laughs> like it's say like my editor's like, no, you have to let it go. You have to move on, right? So, in the book, I talk about a few different paradigms as I was being politicized around them. So, like climate justice or justice, environmental justice, disability justice, which are still like relatively new to me. I'm still finding mm-hmm. myself struggle through so many of these concepts because it's you would think that policing take place in the vacuum, right? Which is what the ref, like a reform paradigm kind of pushes us to think that we can like fix the police mm-hmm. and then they can be better responses to all of these other ills in society. It's actually not true. So I love that abolition has been and people forge it alongside other paradigms, like decolonization, for example. And mm-hmm. I think what I think I say in the book is something like there's some people who think or argue or suggest that abolition can like speak to everything, right? Like mm-hmm. abolition is their primary paradigm. And I think that it's very important that some people organized in that way. And I think that lots of people I've organized with think about abolition alongside feminism, right? Which is why Mm -hmm. there are people who are critical of so-called feminists who use incarceration and police as a women or gender issue. When it's like, well, actually prison and police aren't feminists, they're anti-feminists, right? And and that's how we get the language of carceral feminism. So for people who are organized at the intersection of feminism and abolition, those two paradigms together are able to produce new lenses for us to get free. Same with like disability justice or same with environmental justice. So we can think of, we can conceive of a society where the penalties for polluting the earth, like for littering, it's like a fine or someone goes to jail, right? And we can see people say, this is how we're going to protect the earth from like all of this horrible littering. Right. Well, that's not necessarily abolitionist, but people would say like, well, this is towards environmental justice or climate justice. But then we have people who would say, well, what if there are other ways for us to incentivize people to throw trash away? Well, how do we reduce trash without relying on the cross of the state? Right. That would be an example of something that's in, uh, intersecting between environmental justice or fighting environmental degradation alongside abolition. What I try to do when I study these 
like paradigms or I'm organizing within them is ask which traditions are we in? Like, are we relying on police and prisons or prosecutors to sort of enforce what we're fighting for? Or are we trying to undermine those institutions' place in the world that we want? And what I hope to do, what I hope to be doing is to undermine their place in the world that we're building. How do you encourage folks to who are working towards abolitionist ideas and wanting to implement it in their lives and stuff? How do you how do you help us to reform our thinking? Right. Because like that example of giving someone a ticket for littering, like that seems like an idea that I might have. And then you're saying like, oh, actually, that's not super abolitionist. Like that's actually still part of the carceral state. So like, how do you encourage folks to to change their thinking? Well, it depends on which folks. It depends on which folks, right? Which is why I have sure. 17 jobs, right? So right, right. like, and in one instance, it may be silly someone to say like, hey, stop, don't use the police for this. Or um, in other ways, it's like writing. And so I love writing for people who are curious about abolition, for people mm-hmm. who are thin sitters, not for people who already got it or not for people who are very antagonistic, but for people who are like, Oh, like, what's this thing about? I'm here in Defi. I'm not really sure. I love writing for people who are right there because I remember being at that place and feeling really isolated from communities that I belong to who didn't share or didn't engage with beliefs that I was forming. And so here I am asking questions about capitalism or abolition or decolonization or racism, all this stuff. And I remember like, not feeling particularly safe, like in my church or in certain friend groups, like asking these sorts of questions. And so I found myself being attracted to people who were willing to explain certain concepts and ideas to me without making me feel bad for not already knowing what they meant. So I like love that. I think organizing is another example too and demonstrating that another way it's possible. And that's when I see the work of Dream Defenders or Actors St. Louis, I look at these organizations and I think how um, creatively they organize, not only to like meet people's needs up front, but to also project alternative visions of society onto the world and to tell people it's worth fighting for. And so I, I just love that so, so much because you have people who are literally going, like they're forging the future that they said that we can have by waging campaigns against the government, by, you know, rescuing people from being kidnapped by prisons and police who are bailing mothers out who are bailing people out who society says should stay incarcerated because of some harm they've caused. They're calling into question so many contradictions, right? So in Florida right now, you know, the governor is trying, well, the governor is has moved to ban masks, right? And, and, and to penalize people, penalize school districts, penalize business, businesses who are encouraging mask wearing. And so then you get an organization like the Dream Defenders, for example, who has been constantly protesting against the governor for all these other reasons. So now there's a culture of resistance that people are drawing Mm. from. And now you have local school districts. I want to say directly because of the dream defenders, but you have local school districts who are now defying the governor's mandate. And it's like, this is the kind of resistance that we need to show that another world is possible. So I will highly encourage people to, to read, to be, to read and think with other people to organize, to join an organization alongside one of these paradigms, right? Because it's going to take a lot of different creative solutions to build the society that we want. And I think that's an opportunity. Like, I didn't I didn't have the opportunity to do that, or at least I didn't even know that that opportunity, like, was within my reach. And now, like, through organizing, through writing, through lawyering, I felt fortunate to find community who, who try to make that possible. Yeah. This question, I think, is important. The question is bad, but the answer is important. So I'm kind of just okay. setting you up for it. I'm setting you up because I want you to talk about this, basically, which is why are people so obsessed with abolitionists having all of the solutions? Like that you can't be an abolitionist unless you have a response for murder, all forms of murder, all forms of rape, all forms of this, all forms of that, especially knowing that prison and the police are not a solution to any of these things and like we still have all of these things and we have a police force that is incredibly well-funded and prison systems that are incredibly exploitative and all of this. So I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are about why people are so obsessed with abolitionists being able to solve all of society's ills. Yes. I think for a number of reasons, I think there is a group of people, different groups of people I encounter. There are the, what about the murderous people? What about the sexual violence people who are, 
who don't care about what I say. They don't care if I have a solution. They don't care if I give them, here's a thousand ways that people have been murdered. Here are a thousand answers. It's a gotcha question. It's a, aha, you don't have a specific answer for this. And what Marion Cabo will probably say is that those people don't even have an answer. Police are clearly not the answer. There's so right. many, homicides are increasing alongside police budgets. It makes no sense. It literally right. does not make any sense to continue <laughs> to fund the institution, but they can't, they there is no burden on those group of people to explain why police make sense. None. There's just absolutely not. So it's one group of people. And then there are people who I actually encounter on a daily basis or in, in an organizing capacity or in a lawyer capacity who seriously want to know if the police are removed as an option and if prisons are removed as an option, will I be safe? And those people I care deeply about. Those right. people are the people I have in mind. It's people in my family, my mom, people who, who live in who particular neighborhoods where their options for safety are police or nothing. And now you're telling people who have been dispossessed, exploited, vulnerable to all kinds of violence from their partners, their lovers, their children, their neighbors, strangers and cops, that you're going to remove the one thing that's funded in their communities. And now it's like, are we just going to have nothing? So I think that those particular people are obsessed with defunding the police or abolition because they seriously want to know. And I think they have the right to know yes. if we take away this institution, am I going to be safe? Right. And that's when I think the burden is on abolitionists and other organizers to explain that, well, one, we're not going to lose police overnight because people love cops too much. So you don't even right. have there's not there's over a million cops, 18,000 law enforcement agencies, like you are fine. Like that's not right. going to happen. But what has to happen is that the very same factors that lead to your vulnerability have to be addressed because otherwise the police are only going to be the solution and they can't even solve that problem. They are right. the problem. So we have to be committed to explaining that, look, not only do we want to eradicate policing, we also want to eradicate the other kinds of harms that you're vulnerable to. We don't, we don't, you're not safe from police and you're not safe from sexual violence. Abolitionists are committed to figuring out how to keep you safe from sexual violence. You feel unsafe because of gun violence. Abolitionists are committed to eradicating gun violence. So we don't see police as a vacuum, as just one institution that needs to go away. We see them as a failed response to the harms that also keep you unsafe. Now we need your partnership to be committed to figuring out how to keep you safe from all violence, including the violence of police. And I think that's on us to do that. Right. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question now that I think I could be, this could be like, I'm still an asshole and I'm still learning, but no, this is asshole. one of the things, <laughs> this is one of the things that came up for me um, in the book. And it's something that I've been thinking about, you know, prior to the book, but I'd love to get your take on it, which is, I know accountability is a huge part of the work of abolitionists, right? Like community accountability, accountability to those in your community and the community to the people and all of that. So not all, but yes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Some. And I'm wondering, is punishment ever warranted in the world in which we are able to have abolition, right? Like in this world that you are, are working towards every day and in the world that you're writing about. And I think of that on like a bigger scale, like when the government does something wrong mm -hmm. against citizens, like I'm not thinking about punishment for an individual who causes another individual harm, but I'm thinking about the pollution that mm -hmm. the government is will willfully allowing or the corruption, you know, an Enron scandal or a Bernie Madoff type thing. Like, is there punishment allowed and is it warranted and like what does it look like oh yeah I don't think you're being an asshole at all actually I, I don't know I just I sometimes like think about question. the question like the questions no. that you probably get asked all the time where you're like this person is such an idiot and they said that they believe in this and then they're asking oh, me this no, no, dumb no, no. ass question I, so I just want to make sure no 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 so at, at any point so I have tons of questions about abolition like yeah yeah constant so, yeah constant <laughs> questions and my ideas about abolition are constantly evolving. So there are things that I believe before I wrote that book that through writing that book that I don't believe anymore. Like I have let go or I think differently about. So it's, yes. Yeah, so I hope that with anything, any um, paradigm, any idea, any practice, we always have the freedom to ask questions, to provoke, to be curious, because I ultimately think that's like good. It's 
Yeah, so yeah, no, you're not an asshole. Unless you're just trying to be an asshole, then you're an asshole. But no. I don't think you're trying to be an asshole. I'm not trying to be, but no, who knows? No, no, no. I, don't think, I think it's a very important question. I think the first thing I'll say is that I think that there's no one abolition world that I would say people I consider abolitionists to agree on, right? Okay. So uh, there are people who are very, very anti-punishment. They believe that it's immoral for any human to have the capacity to inflict violence upon another human being in a way that causes harm, in a way that's arbitrary, um, in a way that doesn't comport with ideas of what it means to be a, a good person, a good citizen, right? And so there's an overlap between like those abolitionists and like pacifists, for example. Now, there are people who are abolitionists, socialists, who want to reserve the right to punishment because they believe that capitalists should be punished for causing so much death and destruction, right? So those people probably still have some forms of violence and or punishment. And I don't think violence and punishment are the same thing on the table, right? Because they will probably say like, yeah, you know what? The, the kinds of violence that BP does in the world, the kinds of destruction, those executives need to be brought and I don't know, beheaded, whatever. So like, <laughs> there are people who believe in revolutionary violence, who believe that, you know, part of the abolitionist or insurrectionary project is to hold people accountable for harms they've committed that cause so much destruction, right? There are abolitionists who, I think I'm maybe closer to this camp. I think there are abolitionists who believe that under the current world that we have, whatever source of punishment we demand for the people who cause violence would be the silly for them, but it would be the floor for the rest of us. So one example is um, Bill Cosby, or even a cop. We can even do a cop, but Bill Cosby, that Bill Cosby is free, I think is one example of what it means for someone with power, wealth, status, even a black man to be put in, in prison and then ultimately released. And then the impulse is to say, well, this is proof why, you know, survivors don't come forward. And it's like, well, the alternative issue too, it's, it's not simply because of this one individual person. It's that the system is only going to put a cap on the kinds of punishment that we have in place for people who we consider to be harm causes, right? And so I don't think that punishment, like in the way that I think of punishment is the arbitrary infliction of violence that's decided, you know, non-democratically or immorally towards another human being. I don't think that punishment is a good thing. Now, in the abolitionist world that we want, maybe we can settle disputes or fights or harm for all sorts of reasons. In the actual abolitionist world that I want, there are no major polluters. Like, we don't, like that, right. something like that is not even on the table. Hopefully what's left are like accidents, you know, people who cause harm because I mean, I guess I'm still a Christian so I still do believe in some forms of sin and right. harm. I think those things are going to happen. I think we do have to figure out accountability. I think when sometimes people think accountability, it's like, oh, we like, we sit in, our, in a circle and we like talk about our feelings and like after that, everyone sort of go, no, actual accountability for harm is very, very, very hard. Like, it can be gruesome. Sometimes punishment may feel like the better solution because some people just want to get it over with, mm-hmm. right? There's actually no true account for what took place, the harm that was caused, the outlash of it, the, what the person is going to have to do to repair the harm through the accountability, through, through some sort of processes. So we actually, accountability, I think, could be actually much more harder than Punishment, I think punishment can be much more satisfying because it's mm-hmm. usually it's immediate. Mm-hmm. It's one-sided, like one person gets to decide like what's going to happen to this person. It, it, it gives us some sort of satisfaction that something was done, right? And we don't have to, then we don't have to be held accountable as to whether the punishment was like right or sufficient. So I think that the punishment game makes me a little bit uneasy because it feels a bit arbitrary. And I think that accountability is important. I think it can be much harder than punishment. And that's ultimately what I want in the world that we have. Okay. You're a freaking genius. I'm um, not a freaking genius. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to take like a quick little ad break and then we're going to come back and talk about books. Okay. I know I mentioned this at the top of the show, but I wanted to take a moment to thank Tawny Newsom, Andrew T., Kevin Bartelt, and Nate Urbanski, the folks over at Suboptimal Pods. 
Um, if Andrew and Tawny's names sound familiar to you, it's because A, Tawny's been on this podcast. Incredible. Go back and listen. But they also host the show, Yo, Is This Racist? A comedy podcast that answers your questions about racism. I had the great joy of being on their show earlier this year, and you should 100% listen to that episode and subscribe to Yo, Is This Racist? wherever you got your podcasts. When I decided to go indie, the crew at Suboptimal Pods, they lent their skills and services to help me make the transition which was so empowering and ended up being pretty seamless, which is great. I've joined forces with them as part of their suboptimal podcast co-op, or as Andrew says, we're basically just a pod crew, which means I now have some pod friends to help me stay creative and share resources with. There's no money exchanging hands. I'm not on a network or anything like that. It's just about like-minded podcasting folks working together to share and collaborate. And in the field of podcasting, I cannot tell you how incredibly rare that is. Basically, I just wanted to give them a huge public thank you and send you all to suboptimalpods.com to check out all of the incredible content that they have in addition to their free show, Yo, Is This Racist? So Andrew, Tawny, Kevin, and Nate, thank you, thank you, thank you. And everyone else, go check them out. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Okay. We're back from our break. We do this little thing here called Ask the Stacks. Someone has written in to me. They're asking for book recommendations and you are going to give them one and I'm going to give them one. I'm okay. springing this on you. This is a surprise. So, it's Oh, okay. thank you. Okay. <laughs> this is the only surprise of the whole thing. You got to keep, keep it on your toes. Um, okay. So this one comes from Emma. Emma says, I'm looking for an engrossing, unputdownable nonfiction book. I especially love investigative journalism or just good reporting on a specific topic, historical event, or person. Something in the vein of Empire of Pain, Blood in the Water, and Columbine. Even better if it's a lesser known topic. Okay. I will, I'll give some examples so you have time to think. Is that okay? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Emma, here are my suggestions for you. The first book I actually haven't read, but I've been wanting to read, and I've heard it's freaking incredible. It's called Wave by Sonali and I'm going to probably mess up her last name, but uh, Sonali Dariangala. And it's about the tsunami that happened in the 2008 range. I think they made a movie out of it with, uh, what's that blonde lady? Uh, gosh, should have done more research. Anyways, it's called Wave. It's supposed to be great. It was like on one of the top 50 memoirs of the last 50 years list from the New York Times. I really want to read it. I've heard it's fantastic. The next book is a book that I just finished. It's called Paradise by Lizzie Johnson, and it's about the fires, the campfire in um, Northern California, and it's about kind of what happened there and how it all unfolded, and it's really not hard to put down. Um, and then the last one is some real true investigative journalists. I'm giving you a major throwback. It's All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodard about uh, Nixon and his impeachment and Watergate and all of that. So those are my three recommendations. They're sort of all over the board. Derica, do you, you only have to do one. 
Okay, so this is a book <laughs> that's in, in my key right now. It's Another Day in the Death of America by oh, Gary Young. Okay. Really yes. good. It's okay. really good. Yes, I'm like, yes. I was like, it's so, that's such a specific request. <laughs> I, I get like, a lot of really specific oh, questions. Like, yes, okay. <laughs> no, you did good. It's so good. It's about, it's about 10 uh, children yeah. who are killed by gun violence in America on one particular day. It's like a random day in November that he picks and it takes you all across the country. It's a really, really good book. Okay. Now we're going to get to your taste in reading, Derica. So this should be easier. These are the books that you love. Um, and we always so hard. I get <laughs> I so nervous with stuff like this. Don't be nervous. Yes. Okay. Everyone knows it's your, your opinion today. I've had so many people yell at me and be like, how can I possibly pick? So, you know, it's fine. You'll be great. You'll do great. Um, we always start here. Two books you love and one book you hate. And you can love it for any reason and you can hate them for any reason. I love Robin G. Kelly, Freedom Dreams. Like, okay. it's probably my favorite book. It probably the book to half of whatever question you're going to ask me is going to be Freedom Dreams. One of the most important books of my life. Another book that I love, Breathe by Imani Perry. Ugh, just so, so beautiful. Good. Yes. Just and so, you have so two sons. I do have two sons. So, of course, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I have two sons now, too. Oh, congrats. So, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. The two, the two son black mom club is alive and well, thanks to Imani Perry. Thriving. Yes, we have yes. the representation. Yeah. What about a book you hate? Oh, my gosh. There's this book, I feel so bad by like calling books out because it's, it's okay. just like, it's okay. It's a safe space. We, we everyone yeah, does it here. There's like, so there's a genre of books that I hate, which are like handbook criminal justice reform kind of books. So like decarcerate, like the road to decarcerate uh, America. So books that are kind of like, that look at one particular institution, like in a bubble. And it's just like, here's how we like decarcerate. And mm. typically it's not, it's really not. Like there's no little to no engagement with capitalism, little to no engagement as to why people are in like situations is super sympathetic to like nonviolent, quote, nonviolent drug offenders. It's, so those sorts of like handbooky kind of yeah. books makes me like a little bit nervous because then it feels like this is something that we could just do overnight and like, boom, there it is. And it's usually not. So yeah, right. that's one of okay. my, one of the books I've read that was just like, come on, like we need no this. Yes. Okay. What about, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm reading a book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm reading this book about the, the kidnapping club. I'm like, what's the name of this book? <laughs> it's this book about, yeah, it's a really cool book actually about all of these like judges and higher ups in New York city who basically engaged in the slave trade by kidnapping like free black people or capturing like slaves who've run away from the South and basically sell them through like a loop back to slave owners and sometimes often for a profit. So that's yeah. a book that I'm reading right now. That sounds really interesting. Yes, it's called The Kidnapping Club. It is really, and it has this really interesting history of like Rikers and some black abolitionists who like fought to break up this kidnapping club. It's yeah, it's very, very interesting. I, because I've I had to turn to blood blood in the water, I was like, what am I reading? I'm like, oh yeah, that's that. <laughs> yes. Are there any books that are coming out besides your own that you're looking forward to? Well, Miriam Kaba and Angela Ritchie have a book that's coming out um about police abolition. I'm excited about I'm excited for Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book on abolition. I'm like super in abolition world. And so right. all the books that are coming out kind of with Haymarket, I'm I'm really excited about. Oh yeah, yeah. I just bought David Correa and Tyler Wall's book. I'm blanking on the name right now. I'm excited to read that book. I think it comes okay, out I'll link it months. to the sh I'll yes. link everything in the show notes. So Sorry. yeah, don't worry. So don't you don't have to worry about the title. Well, it'll all be there, people. Look in the show notes. Yes. Um and there's so many books that have come out that like 99% of the books <laughs> I've read have kind of been towards this book so I can get it done. So there are books that have come out in the last year that I'm so excited about, like the three mothers. I have been waiting to read that book for like seven months. And so I'm like, um, I have to finish The Kidnapping Club. I am very excited about The Three Mothers. When you're not reading towards abolition, what sort of stuff do you like to read? Mostly nonfiction because I'm very, I love reading about history. I, I So Elizabeth Hinton's book, it's just like kind of my alley, even though it's not, I'm, it's weird that it's not towards like his, it's not towards abolition, but it is about rebellion. I love reading those sorts of books. I love reading books about like 
religion. I love Jasmine Ward. So I don't read mm. a ton of nonfiction, but when I do, it's, it's Jasmine Ward. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so my genres are typically like history, social movement history, Black liberation theology, and then books that someone just kind of, you kind of have to read this book. Okay. And, and then books by Jasmine Ward. And then books by <laughs> Jasmine Ward, yes. <laughs> What's a book that you really like to recommend to other people? Oh, Freedom, Freedom Dreams is the book I recommend the most. It's the book that I gift the most to people. I'm always like, okay, you have to read this book. Because even though it's not reading towards like abolition or some particular project, Robin just does such an incredible job of like showcasing all the ways that so many people have struggled for freedom using their imagination towards like liberation ends. And it was the first book where I was introduced to this history of Black socialist organizing, Black communist organizing, radical Black lawyers, radical Black writers, musicians, poets, people who are surrealists. It was just like a catch-all book. And it was also the first book I read where contrary to like the here's how to do this specific thing in 10 steps. He has this incredible um, conclusion where he just sort of like writes about the world that he wants, which is the huge inspiration to like the, the conclusion to my book. And so I was just like, oh, wow, this feels good. I wish writers like did this like more of just taking a risk and saying these are the kinds of things that I like. So definitely the book I always recommend to anyone, any age. It's the book I get the most. It's the book that I consider one of my Bibles. The conclusion of your book gave me chills. Oh, I I had that in my notes. I was like, remember that this made you feel things. Do you have a favorite bookstore? Oh, man. So I love different bookstores for different reasons. Um, <laughs> so I'm a huge library kid. So I grew up okay. mostly in a library. So I didn't start going to bookstores until college. Um, I love St. Kofa in D.C. because it's just like... It's just so, it's just deeper than a bookstore. It's just like much deeper than a bookstore. Um, I also love Red Emma's. Red Emma's is a worker-owned co-op bookstore in Baltimore. I also love Charm City, which is a new bookstore in Baltimore. It's really cute. They have like puppet space upstairs for kids. Um, I love Left Bank Books. It's a bookstore that's down the street from one of my favorite libraries in St. Louis. Um, I love Trident in Boston. Oh my gosh, they have these tater tots called Mega Tots. <laughs> and they have mozzarella cheese in the middle. So I love going to Trident and reading. Yeah. So those are some of the ones where I probably spent the most amount of time that are probably like precious to me. I love both oh Valerian books, even though I haven't been. It's like my favorite bookstore that I get books from online because I have one? Valerian in San okay. Francisco. It's like okay. a radical left bookstore. They have a ton of out of print movement books. And so even though they've been closed, I wasn't able to visit them, but I get a ton of books and pamphlets and like activist stuff in there. Love that. What's the last book that made you laugh? The last book that made me laugh. This is so, when did I laugh? (laughs) All the books (laughs) I read are like, the world is ending, police are bad. It's so depressing. What's a book that made me laugh? Oh, well. I think I already said breathe, but there's a section in breathe where Imani is talking about how the airports in St. Louis sell flaming <laughs> hot chips. And it was so specific and so true. <laughs> That's the last time I remember laughing out loud. I think that a book. Okay. Um, what about the last book to make you cry? Oh man. Man, we weep. Oh, oh my gosh. So we have done both Men We Reaped and Breathe on this podcast. So you're oh really speaking gosh. to my soul. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Salvage the Bones too, but for different reasons. But Men We Reaped felt so familiar to me. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it felt so familiar. Um, I don't, I'm, I don't know if people have read the book, but just the amount of loss and grief, mm-hmm. like connected to the people like in her life. This made me think about how every year I'm constantly preparing to like lose people, especially people I grew up with, people I hung Mm. out with, people I like play sports with. And it's like another kid, another kid who's like yet to become like a full man or another man who's yet to become an elder. It just spoke to so many different kinds of people in my life. And so that, yes. So that book is just, just, yeah, very, very, very emotional. Yeah, Yeah. I'm very emotional. I cry from commercials. So I'm sure there's lots of books that have moved me, but that book moved me in a very deep and intimate way. What's the last book that made you angry? I mean, what doesn't make me angry? So when I was doing research for the book, I read 
one of the kids from the Gen of Six, he published a book. Oh. And it's like a, it's a tiny book, maybe like 40 pages. And I didn't know, I mean, just like reading the account from him that wasn't just from like the, the interviews and things that were swirling on the internet, of the kinds of like violence that those kids went through mm. that precipitated, like the events that caused all the marches, just, it made me just, I was livid. Mm. I, like it, it like brought me back like 15 or 17 years it's just yeah so that yeah so that was probably the last book that made me it I don't know what the, how to describe this feeling where you get like I don't know if it's like retroactively angered like hmm. something is like I wanted to go back and like do something about this thing um. that had already passed like reading this kid's book, like they had to be sent away out of the state because it wasn't safe for them to like go to school. The Mm. judges, I mean, yes, that, yes, that book made me live it. Is there any book that you're embarrassed to have read? Embarrassed? No, I am very proud of my sister soldier days. I'm very proud of my (laughs) coldest winter ever days. I'm very proud of my Zane days. Those, like, okay. my middle school and high school years, I was very proud of them. People probably consider that embarrassing now, but no, I, like, love those books. This might be the same question, but do you have any problematic favorite books? Problematic favorite? Oh, well, yeah, and probably Coda Winter. It's a classic. You have to yeah. love Coda Winter ever. Like, <laughs> it's, it's you, yeah, you kind of have all the violence, all the drug dealing, all the sex, all the It's, it's, okay. there's nothing quite... <laughs> Yeah, that genre is a very interesting genre that I haven't read in a long time, but interestingly speak to like lots of black people who I know, like who like share, we share like laughter story community over those kinds of texts more than like other traditional like mainstream texts. And so, yes, it's a problematic fave, but it one, it's one that allows me to do really good work. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any favorite books about where you grew up? like about St. Louis area? Are there any books out there that you love? Well, there's a really good book out there called The Broken Heart of America by Walter Johnson. Um, Walter is just brilliant. So everyone should kind of read that book. There's another book called The Life in, it's like The Life of Struggle of Ivory Perry. Uh-huh. Um, it's by George Lipsitz. Also just, it's a, I guess it's a biography of, of Ivory Perry's life, but George Lipsitz just does such an incredible job of like, painting a history of singles organizing and activism that I, I just really really love and then what actually makes me so sad is that in the beginning of I know why Cage first sings Maya Angelou talks about living in St. Louis mm-hmm. and she, we lived in the same neighborhood and she does not like it like she does not <laughs> she does not like it <laughs> and so like it's, and so she talks about being at Loverture she talks about like her teachers and like the other kids are there. She was like, I want to go back to the South. So I try to redeem my middle school because we went to the same middle school. So I try to like oh, redeem wow. my middle school a little bit and like become an abolitionist. But that's like an also just an incredible book. And it's not about St. Louis, but it, St. Louis has a little cameo there. Has a moment. Okay. Has a it, moment. So my grandmother doesn't like Maya Angela. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, full circle moment. Full circle. <laughs> um, if you could assign one book to be read in high school, what is the book you would assign to your students? Uh, to every answer is going to be Freedom Dreams. It's going okay. to be Freedom Dreams. Um, I mean, they're high school. I think The Bluest Eye mm. was so transformative. Another book we've done on this podcast. Listen, <laughs> it messed me up. This is like, I was probably the most obvious thing that I can say about Toni Morrison. It's not like a deep, original thought but it's the first book that I read someone like write about race without talking about race Mm. it was just like oh yeah like why am I attracted to these things or why do I desire these things and even the scene with the girl and the boy she goes to the boy's house and the way Toni Morrison is describing how how short the little boy's hair is Mm. to Mm -hmm. avoid like how black he is it was just like Oh my gosh, it's just just revelatory. So the, I would probably say the bluest eye. Okay, this is my last book question for you. Okay, I, mean, I have a million, but this I'll stop here. I stole this from the New York Times. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? 
are there any books about resigning? Because I don't think, um, what should Joe Biden read? Um, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada Taylor. Okay, good answer. Yeah. Um, all right, everyone. This is your reminder. Derrica's book is out October 5th. This is everyone's reminder right now pre-order it. There is a link to the book in the show notes, wherever you're listening right now. If you look at your phone or your computer, you will see a hyperlink to the book. That is where you can pre-order it. Do that now. I will remind you this pretty much every day this month as I remind you about Derica. but we will be back on September 29th, the last Wednesday of the month, discussing Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson. There will be quote unquote spoilers, though there aren't really spoilers. This event happened 50 years ago, so you know, whatever. Um, but Please read the book. It is a long book, so give yourself time. I didn't. It didn't take me long to read it, but just you know, if you if you need the time, take it because it's over five hundred pages. So, giving everyone that update. But again, please, please, please read Becoming Abolitionists. Pre-order it, Derica. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, thank you so so much for having me. This was this is incredible. Oh yay! And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Derica for being my guest. Also, a big thank you to Emily Lavelle for coordinating this interview. Again, I want to say a huge thank you to Kevin Bartelt for helping me to migrate the show and making this transition back to the indie world seamless. The Stacks Book Club pick for September is Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, September 29th with Derica Purnell. If you love the show, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack and get our new bonus episodes and other exciting perks. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Thank you and welcome to our new sound editor, Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tegira Gist. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy.